Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast should not be construed as the provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. In this week's episode, I'm joined by Evan Fung, founder and CIO of Tapestry Capital. Evan, it's great to have you on. Hey, Josh, it's great to be here and thanks for inviting me. So why don't we uh, dive right into it? So... Uh, Evan has has quite the quite the background, one of the most impressive I've seen in in crypto. And so, Evan, I'd love to hear you know what you did before crypto and and why you decided to leave that and kind of uh, you know enter into the space. Sure, um, I guess as a disclaimer, I hope the crypto anarchists don't hold it against me, but I do have a prior background um, with a career in traditional finance prior to getting bit by the crypto bug. Uh, I started off doing investment banking at Barclays Capital where I was part of a group uh, called Leverage Finance, where we raised high-yield debt and loans for companies that would be used for acquisitions or um, you know, refinancing existing debt. I then had the opportunity to move on to what we called the buy side. And I was in uh, fundamental long-short equities investing roles at Citadel and then Point72, which are both um, you know, fairly large hedge funds based, uh, in I guess, headquartered in Chicago, but I was in New York for Citadel as well as for Point72. Um, On those teams, I actually helped cover stocks within tech, media, and telecom. And it was actually between Citadel and Point72 that I discovered Bitcoin, um, not really for the first time, but really had the time to kind of dig into it. And it was, uh, you know, pretty quick for me after reading the white paper and realizing that um, I should take this new space a lot more seriously than I had, that I started making plans to uh, move full-time into the space. And I've been, uh, you know, kind of jumping in uh, full-time since the beginning of 2019 and uh, have been learning a lot and, um, you know, making new friends such as Josh here. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm super excited to to dive in a little bit more into, you know, your past and, and what you did before. But before we even get into that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're doing now. What is Tapestry Capital? Um, and, and what, like, you know, you know, Tapestry Capital is a hedge fund, which I'll, I'm sure you'll get into. But what is your investment thesis? How long you're hold, holding positions? How are you allocating to assets? Yeah, absolutely. So we are a fundamental focused, long, short, discretionary emerging manager focused on largely the liquid um, secondary market trading uh, within crypto overall. I think, you know, for me, I think of our focus as uh, primarily concentrated on the top 20 to 30 large caps uh, based on their liquidity profiles and sort of longer track record, but also, um, you know, looking opportunistically at things that are slightly less liquid, but still maybe in the top 100 or 200 by diluted market cap that could potentially become, you know, top 20 or um, top 30 in the next six to 12 months. I think maybe a good way to think about it is my idea for TapCap is driven by the belief that similar to how I was trained in evaluating winners and losers in stocks of legitimate companies with cash flows, I think there's still ways to have ideas of how some of these different tokens and coins are ultimately going to differentiate over time, um, even with some of them being pretty correlated to each other. I think 
there are either spurts now where you start to see some of that breaking down and uh, expose alpha generation opportunity, or you know, in the future, I think structurally there will just be more dispersion as um, some of the uncertainty that is discounted in the space uh, goes away over time. So you mentioned, you know, kind of both the short and long term horizon, right? You know, in in the short term, a lot of these assets are correlated to one another, whereas. And in the long run, we've seen with a lot of, you know, different digital assets from, for example, the 2017 bull run to now, you have some assets like Denticoin, which were worth, you know, two mm-hmm. or $4 billion in AUM or not in AUM, I mean, uh, market cap that are now worth, you know, negligible amounts of money and other assets that have, have only fallen by 30 or 40%. So when you're looking at assets and you're looking at alpha opportunities, how much of that is, is short term and, and how do you define short term and how much of that is long term? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the answer is I I guess I think of short term more as opportunities that could be entered into and exited, you know, sometime between 0 and 6 months and then longer term or medium term, you know, is kind of 6 to 18 months and then there are certainly longer term positions that in my mind are kind of core to how I invest my uh, the, the pool of capital as well and that might be uh, 18 month plus holding periods. I think um, you know, it's not a controversial statement within people that trade in digital assets that I, I do have some part of my thesis, um, you know, a- around Bitcoin BTC potentially being a longer term store of value. But then there are other obviously more idiosyncratic opportunities that could be driven by catalysts such as mainnet launches or partnership announcements, exchange listings, etc. Some of that, which, um, you know, you kind of also help cover on the data side for the tie. So I think, there's actually a lot of different ways to skin the cat, um, especially nowadays with sort of the DeFi craze. There's almost too much information to process, but that's never a bad thing from an investor perspective. I think people are generally more, um, going back to kind of the Denicoin example that you mentioned, people are more discerning now, which is ultimately better for the longer term prospects of price discovery for projects that are actually legitimate, have you know a, a real addressable market that they're pursuing effectively. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And so are you, I mean, I, I know you mentioned from a short term, it was, you know, I think you said one to six months. And you, you mentioned a lot of opportunities in the space, right? You know, you know, the the I I would say ridiculousness that is DeFi mania right now, you know, things like exchange listings moving the prices of tokens by a hundred plus percent. Yep. Um, do you see those as opportunities or do you see those as distractions in in kind of the way that you look at investing in TapCap? Great question. I think for me, it's maybe 60-40, 60% distraction, but 40% opportunity. It's a little number. That I guess I just pulled out of my head to answer this question. But I think um, there are definitely projects that have solid fundamentals. I mean, an example, so I'm not even invested, so I'm not talking my book here, but um, you know, Yearn, Wi-Fi, right? That's, that's one that's caught a lot of people's eye. And there are certainly parts of that project that people are um, excited about in terms of, uh, you know, maybe a fair distribution and kind of the intention for governance to be uh, quite equitable going forward. But um, there are also clones of, of that protocol that people have forked off to try to capture some of the FOMO. So maybe that's a good bifurcation of what could be distraction versus a, a legitimate project in, um, in DeFi. But overall, zooming out, I do think the DeFi craze is... Uh, it's definitely something that's getting more eyeballs on the space, but I certainly worry about um, you know the potential for things to to blow up in a way that could blow back negatively 
and, and maybe set the space back. But given how small the capital pools are overall, I guess I'm a little comforted, especially if you factor in with the Ethereum gas fees uh, going up. It actually, I think, limits the amount of damage, uh, meaning it's it's mostly kind of whales that are following the space closely that have the amount of capital to pay for some of the friction of testing out and investing in some of these yield farming examples. Um, as we're recording this, you know, YAM is something that's making the headlines today. And I honestly, I, I haven't really looked at it that much. Which, beyond, which, by the way, the, yeah. the founders of YAM came out on Twitter and said their code isn't they audited. And they said it's not audited. And they retweeted other people that were also commenting on top of that to, to reiterate and so, but, I mean, that's, you yeah. know, not, not to interject, but I mean, that, that's something that, you know, it worries me actually. I think, mm-hmm. I think, I think you have a really good point and I haven't really thought about this. I think the gas fees, um, and, and for anybody listening who doesn't know, you know, a gas fee is basically a fee that you pay, you know, whenever you're making a transaction on Ethereum and because of all of this DeFi mania and all these decentralized finance, uh, platforms kind of taking, taking hold, uh, you know, the cost to make any transaction on Ethereum is going up. And I think Evan's thesis is totally correct, is the fact that if you're making smaller transactions in DeFi, you're probably going to be less inclined to do so, uh, given, you know, given the rising gas fees. But one thing that worries me, and I know this is kind of a distraction, but I think it's definitely a rabbit hole going down, is kind of the the outside looking in viewpoint in this space, right? You know, we had this 2017 ICO mania and and nobody really took us, you know, seriously when you had, you know, BitConnect, right? And you had all these other ICOs and you had the SEC chasing down and and continuing to chase down all these scammers. And now I kind of see DeFi as, as, as not being a continuation of that, but certainly sharing some characteristics of that. I mean, you look at, you know, and, and I think bringing up YAM was totally, totally right, right? Where, where YAM's code is un- unaudited, but the smart contracts for so many of these DeFi platforms are unaudited. And, and you know, people talk about, oh, well, you can get insurance on Nexus Mutual, but you have smart contract risk on Nexus Mutual, which offers insurance for DeFi platforms. And just in Q2, we saw five DeFi-related hacks, I mean, one of which was over $25 million. Um, so, I mean, how do you... Um, I mean, I mean, how, you know, you came from a traditional finance background. What, what do you think your former colleagues at Point Seventy Two and Citadel are, are are thinking when they see DeFi? Do you think they just ignore it, um, or do you think that they're just like, oh, this is just some other mess that crypto is getting into? Yeah, great question. I think honestly, uh, most people that I've worked with in the past, or I mean, just former colleagues, are probably not focused enough on crypto to even know how DeFi fits within it. I think for most people. Uh, they're still, you know, they, when they just equate Bitcoin with crypto and maybe they've heard of Ethereum. But I think DeFi is something that maybe they know it stands for decentralized finance, but certainly uh, are probably not likely to be familiar with some of these protocols. So, but to answer your hypothetical, I think if, if they were to hear about it and hear us talk about um, some of these projects and explain them a little more, I think there are parts of what's going on that they would definitely recognize, right? I mean, FOMO is ultimately something that's inherently core to our psychology as humans and as participants in the market, whether that's traditional equities or digital assets. I think um, what's happening with DeFi right now is um, it's a narrative that works, that's um, you know certainly got traction and some validation in terms of price action for some of these new listings and even existing projects that um, you know had maybe traded for a while, but now are seeing real volumes and appreciation. And that is exciting for people to talk about um, when people are interested, that obviously drives more coverage from the uh, the media within crypto, and then even a little bit from traditional media. So I think those are all parts of the flywheel that 
ultimately attract more people to do the work and maybe learn how to navigate the space. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm ultimately like cautiously optimistic because the more people that interface with crypto, the, the better I think the outcome will be because it helps us bootstrap those network effects that are ultimately going to be somewhat um, transferable between different projects because I think ultimately as people do their own analysis, you know, they'll like certain projects more than others and um, it'll just result in conversations that ultimately help price discovery. And so when, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about DeFi here, a question that I have for you is, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the, the FAT protocol thesis was proposed a few years ago. Basically, the idea with the FAT protocol thesis is that in the internet, all of the value uh, accrued at the application layer, right? It accrued at your Google, you know, your Google.com and your Yahoo's, et cetera, um, you know, not at the TCP, IP, HTTP layers. Whereas in crypto, what we saw over the last, you know, or, or the first few years, I guess I would say, is the majority of the value accruing at the protocol layer, right? You know, the majority of, of value wasn't accruing to ERC-20 tokens, but mm -hmm. it was accruing to Ethereum. But what we've kind of started to see now with like Chainlink, for example, is Chainlink is becoming extremely significant. I mean, how do you, in, in your kind of, you know, the way that you look investing in this market, how, how do you kind of separate out protocols for applications? And when you look at things like DeFi, are you looking more at how that impacts something like an Ethereum or a polka dot, or are you looking at how that, you know, how that how that impacts, you know, the applications built on top? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's something that people are debating now more than ever. Um, I guess the short answer I would start with is I do feel like the original FAT protocol thesis has been diluted somewhat by what we've seen more recently over the last year or two, as to your point, some of these ERC-20 tokens that are ultimately represent networks that are you know, capturing additional value appear to have appreciated more and captured more of the incremental capital than uh, perhaps the, you know, the base layers that they are built on or, or architected using. I think at the same time, though, I wouldn't necessarily write off um, you know, the OGs, Bitcoin and Ethereum either in the sense that uh, there are network effects that are kind of, specifically with Bitcoin, right, unique to kind of its value proposition as a store of value. And even Ethereum, to some degree, has that network value, maybe less in the moneyness of it, but more in sort of that brain power of ETH devs that know Solidity and may or may not be working on other projects, but ultimately that'll tie into ETH uh, either directly or maybe indirectly with side chains or some of the additional upgrades um, and other protocols that are working on immutability and, uh, sorry, interoperability and composability. So I think, you know, the FAT protocol thesis is more challenged, but I don't think it'll ever go away. Like, I don't think it can be disproven. And I certainly expect if we do see a, another step function up in total market cap of crypto, it will involve participation from, from Bitcoin and Ethereum, as well as some of the others like Link that you mentioned. Uh, it may just be a matter of sequencing, right? Because uh, it, it sort of depends on who the players are and if they maybe wanted to lock in some of the paper gains that they made on you know, as we're recording this link going to $16, um, maybe they're rotating that back into the majors because they're anticipating, you know, some new, more fundamentally driven news that gets more eyeballs on the space overall in fourth quarter or, or whatever their thesis may be, right? I think that's sort of the, the beauty and the what's terrifying about this marketplace is um, there are just so many different participants, but we're all trying to figure out uh, what's best for us and express that in views that ultimately net out to price discovery. And that's what's kind of beautiful, but also scary.
So an interesting kind of, you know, question, I guess this ties in your previous experiences and now is, you know, the things that we're talking, I mean, Evan and I have known each other for, uh, you know, I, I would say over a year, however long it's been. And the things that we were talking about a year ago are just so fundamentally different than the things that we're talking about today. I mean, you know, DeFi has been a thing all along, but nobody saw four or five billion in, in you know, total lock value coming. You know, so my question is, you know, you know, have the last, you know, two years, I guess, since you came into digital assets played out the way that you thought they would? Um, you know, in terms of both your expectations, you know, whether or not it was exceeded or disappointed or just what you actually thought was going to happen in the space. And are there any parallels between crypto and kind of, you know, an experience that you had at like a Citadel or a 0.72 as, as um, you know, working at a traditional hedge fund and seeing another space kind of develop? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first part, the two years, I think there are parts of it that played out the way I thought they would, and there are others that didn't. Um, so I jumped into the space full-time in, uh, I guess it was, yeah, January 2019, and that was the depth of the bear market. Um, it really felt like the ice age. I think Bitcoin was ranging at like low 3000s. Um, you know, so in some ways, the price discovery and sort of recovery since then has played out like I thought it would, thankfully. Um, you know, we didn't go to zero, knock on wood. But I think what... Uh, it has been a little more disappointing or surprising, but also I guess should not have been unexpected is how long it's taken, you know, more of the world or the rest of the world to uh, maybe focus more on this space. I think like yourself, you know, somebody that's full time, uh, you and I are probably very excited and very um, interested in following the latest news, whether it's DeFi or the next craze that we'll all be talking about in three months. Right. Um, but I think for, other people, uh, you know, some of these theses that we have will take them coming on board and believing as well, but they may require more data than the level of diligence that, you know, you know I maybe needed because we perhaps, you know, were, were like read different things or had different life experiences that uh, made us believe in, in crypto earlier. And other people may come as part of the more normal majority uh, later, right? But um, I, I think ultimately... My my feeling is that we're traveling in the right direction, but just the pace is slower than I, I guess, hoped. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because I think there are other positive surprises that I wouldn't have expected that have also been, you know, like potentially important white swans in the future that I, I never even thought about as part of my thesis. Um, maybe you plan to ask about it later, but, you know, a topical event from this week was uh, MicroStrategy kind of buying some Bitcoin and publicly disclosing that is something they're going to hold on their balance sheet apart as part of their treasury strategy. And I don't think anybody was really expecting companies to do this um, to that degree or to be public about it. So that's, you know, certainly something interesting. And there, there are white swans like that, that I think nobody's talking about, but will also help the education journey for, um, you know, the rest of the world over the next few years. And so something interesting that you, you mentioned, you know, was DeFi being, you know, something that came along and then the next three months, you know, there's going to be something else. So, you know, something that I feel like we've constantly seen in crypto are just these changing narratives and things that people are latching onto, right? First, it was Bitcoin is, um, you know, is, is, a, is a digital money, right? And, and Satoshi wrote about that in the white paper. And that was kind of Roger Ver's whole thing, right, where he tried to get everybody to use Bitcoin for transactions. And then because you know, Bitcoin, uh, you know, the Bitcoin network couldn't handle that level of transactions. And because, you know, people in the Bitcoin community disagreed, he forked and created Bitcoin Cash, right? So that was kind of the first narrative. But then we had ICOs, we had DAOs, 
we had IEOs, we had the whole, you know, narrative of utility tokens, right? And, you know, and, and, and those being a thing, um, you know, and, and now we have DeFi. And so my question to you is, what is going to stick? Um, you know, we have lots of these trends and these things that people get excited for for three months. And, and there's lots of great opportunities to, you know, generate alpha off of these things. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, DeFi, people are going to get really, really rich who get in at the right time and, and, and get out at the wrong time, right? But what is what are the narratives that stick? What are the stories that stick? What are the types of protocols that are going to stick? And when we look at back 10 years ago, we're like, okay, you know, you know, this this has been around for a while as opposed to this is a new thing. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, it's probably at this point fair to say that uh, Bitcoin BTC as a store of value is something, you know, that is going to stick for as long as there is a digital asset space. Um, and people like you and I are kind of full-time focused on it. I think um, there have certainly been challenges to, you know, what is Bitcoin? And, you know, there are different forks of, uh, of Bitcoin that have looked at pursuing various expressions of, um, you know, medium of exchange to your point with Bitcoin cash versus the store of value uh, with Bitcoin. And I, I think that the the digital gold narrative is probably very sticky. I think other things that uh, may come and go are, I mean, I think DeFi a year ago, I would have said it would come and go. Um, that was back when they were trying to get everyone to call it open finance uh, instead of DeFi. But I think DeFi is just what's stuck. But I think given what we've seen over the last month, or to, you know, I've honestly been surprised positively by the innovation that's happened with um, some of these automated, uh, you know, kind of market making tools and how they think about supply and demand curves. Obviously, there are some issues with impermanent loss and not to get too technical, but, uh, you know, there there are some problems with some of these. But um, on the whole, they feel to me like a zero to one moment for testing um some of the technology that had never been before deployed. I mean, sure, we've had people talk about DEXs in the past, but some of those were hybrids with still, you know, centralized order books that were maybe settled um, in a more decentralized manner just for latency reasons. But with, with some of what we're seeing now in DeFi, I think there are definitely new technologies that will ultimately make their way um, into traditional assets or, you know, somehow will be incorporated because they do offer new ways of doing things, even if they're very clunky right now in terms of a user interface or user experience with the friction that we talked about with, um, you know, gas, gas fees. In terms of maybe the third part and what uh, is more of a flash in the pan, I think, um, let's see, like, what do I think is popular now that I actually don't think is going to last? Um, that's hard to say. I guess, I mean... I'm still very negative. Well, what do you on, think of yeah. the, the reemergence of the IEO and Binance Launchpad coming back? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that goes back to what we talked about earlier with just FOMO being a core part of the human psychology. And I don't blame market participants, uh, including exchanges uh, who provide you know liquidity and charge for it on spreads or fees for serving up what customers want. So, I mean, at the end of the day, there are definitely certain projects that are more like playing roulette than, um, you know, doing anything fundamental analysis driven. And that's, you know, that's honest. I mean, that's okay too, morally. I think I, as long as people are willingly participating, I suppose like there is more harm than good done in just arbitrarily barring people. Right. Like, I mean something, okay, actually. So this answers your question, right? Like I feel safe to say that, um, 
what was the guy's name? Richard Hart's project Hex, which he, you know, advertised. Did you go 130x, Evan? Yeah, did I did not. No, I did not. I, I missed that. I, I, I don't you know. I'm happy did you to see the taxis in London? He, I, he, yeah, I saw some people took pictures of that. Um, I, I kind of hope that type of behavior does become more um, of a footnote in history. And I'm actually hopeful about that, right? It's sort of like how when the Wild West was still being tamed, there were people that, uh, you know, were con men that went to different frontier towns and actually sold snake oil, uh, literally to people that didn't know better. But over time, um, as I guess their victims became more educated through, uh, just the level of knowledge generally. And for, from people doing their own work, I think, um, the opportunity for scams, like for legitimate, for actual scams to exist will, will go down. And it's unfortunately just I, and I think I think, the I think of frontier technology that we have people like that here now, but I think they'll leave in the future. Yeah, I think you're right too. And I think I think we, we are seeing a significantly less number of scams in this space than we were before. I mean, Richard Hart is a great example of, of of an ongoing one, but I do think that we're seeing a lot like I don't think that DeFi protocols are scams. I think there's a lot of greed that's going yes. on, right? Yeah. And, and I yep. think there's a big difference between greed and scams. And I think we have done a, a relatively good job in the space of cleaning up the scams. And I think the SEC taking this uh, this market seriously um, has definitely helped with that. But one question to you is, you know, as we moved to more defined decentralized finance, and you mentioned DEXs, you know, what do you think the the regulatory response is going to be to this, right? And, and how do you think regulators will, will or, or 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 rather? How do you price that in when you're deciding to make investment decisions across certain digital assets? Like, how, how do you or do you at all evaluate regulatory risk? Yeah, great question. I think regulatory risk is something that used to be um, more worrisome in the past, but I think is becoming less of an overhanging sort of Damocles, like existential risk to our space. I think. Right now, the regime in the United States is one where, um, you know, consistent commentary from sort of the SEC and the CFTC say that they're kind of comfortable with other jurisdictions and nations maybe being more permissive and they're happy to follow. I I think that may change um, in the future to one of more parity as perhaps some of these, uh, you know, projects become more mainstream or maybe there's more uh, just general acceptance of these technologies and companies built to serve these technologies. Uh, for example, you know, with some of the rumors that we've seen in the press uh, concern a potential Coinbase listing, right? And if that were to happen, then traditional equity analysts that cover financials may pick up this company um, and learn more about crypto. And eventually, you know, the dialogues that they have with um, regulators directly or indirectly are also going to kind of make the space more legitimate. I think it's a very broad-based effort that gets regulators comfortable. And I think it seems like that's what's happening, certainly at the staff level, if maybe held up at perhaps more the commissioner level. But you know, those things change and minds take time to change, but it seems like the direction is, is kind of in one direction. I mean, I would love to hear if, if you've heard different, but it seems like as lawmakers learn more about these opportunities um, and, and technologies, if they're really being... I think honest with engaging with the the pros and cons and sort of learning what they 
don't know instead of just trying to fit crypto into a box that they've already put together, then I think they, they tend to become more agreeable and understanding over time. And um, I mean, there are positive signs regulatory uh, from a regulatory perspective, for example, with I think Hester Peirce just getting confirmed again for another term. Um, at the SEC is obviously positive. She's always been a big proponent of Bitcoin and other uh, digital assets. So I think the regulatory risk is going down. Maybe it'll take a different administration to become less, um, I guess, onerous with, with how they are perhaps not moving as quickly. But I mean, I, I think I'm not overly worried because it does give people time that do believe to, uh, you know, I guess, continue to dollar cost average. I guess I, I, I'm happy to go on record and say I don't think Bitcoin will be banned. Um, you know, I know there are people that are more well, you can't, you can't ban that think that could Bitcoin. Happen. You can you can ban the fiat on ramps, which is effectively the same thing. But you can't. Sure, yeah. I think some of these people will say that um, they're. I mean, I think they envision a more adversarial relationship with the government, and they perhaps think it'll be like the gold confiscation that happened in the '30s, where you actually legally had to surrender your gold, um, or you you know risk fines and jail time, and it, you know obviously that would be very challenging to enforce. But certainly that that could become law. And maybe that's what those people fear. But I, I don't really think that's likely at all. No, I, I think and I think as well, you know, Bitcoin is also a generational thing. Right. And I think that as younger people, as more millennials come to power within government, and we've seen that, um, you know, over the last number of years, I mean, we had, you know, Andrew Yang obviously running for president, and, you know, maybe he's a little bit older than a millennial, but he got Bitcoin. Right. And I think as we see you know, younger generations are, I think to your point earlier, looking at Bitcoin as a store of value. And they're looking at Bitcoin, you know, the way that the, the generation prior looked at gold, right? And, um, you know, as you have, you know, older people, you know, you know, no longer in power, and you have those that are younger coming into power, I think that, you know, generally speaking, that should probably be a positive for this space. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, just an example that helps illustrate that generational issue is, you know, I guess the space that I used to cover in the equities world was, uh, you know, including media and telecom. And uh, a lot of these media companies, you know, still continue to have upfronts where they would have everybody that was an ad buyer, um, you know, meet in New York once a year uh, in like, I think April, May to see the new programming and then decide what to spend. But, um, you know, digital advertising took a lot longer than people expected to shift over as a percentage of, of spend for a lot of these brands. And the writing had been on the wall for a while, but it still takes time for people that were used to doing things one way to switch to by all what by all measures is, is kind of better in every single way. Um, and I think that's sort of uh, what's happening with, with digital assets. Um, another, I guess, podcast I was listening to had somebody that was like an older gentleman talking about how they loved gold, but didn't really think you know, didn't really understand Bitcoin and thought gold was better than Bitcoin, but couldn't really answer the host's rebuttals about, um, you know, in what ways was gold better, right? They kind of clung back to the idea of the industrial usage being something that supported gold values. But when you try to do the math on that, that's like less than 2% of the value of, of you know, what the total trillion, uh, $9 trillion of gold globally represent. Um, and, you know, the rest is kind of drooling. And most of it is just as a store of value. So, I mean, I think I totally agree with you. I think it's a generational thing and um, it's, yeah, it's, it's only a matter of time. I think we're all just sort of debating whether it's 
five, 10, 20, hopefully not 50 years. And I mean, the thing, the thing that we've seen as well with, with COVID, if it showed us anything is that necessity is kind of the mother of innovation, right? And, you know, we've seen in the last six months, 15 or 20 years worth of e-commerce growth, right? And, and maybe the, you know, the, 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 you know, the downfall of the US dollar because of infinite printing, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, um, and, and, you know, inflation today exceeding expectations, um, you know, maybe that breeds a significant amount of new interest and kind of expedites the adoption process. I mean, I think when, you know, the CME, uh, you know, announced support of Bitcoin in December 2017, which was kind of the peak, everybody thought that that would bring in all the institutions, right? Oh, my God, the CME is, 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 is you know, now offering Bitcoin options trading. This is the greatest thing ever, uh, or futures. This is the greatest thing ever. You know, everybody's going to come into the space and that, and that didn't happen. W- what we've seen is kind of a slower adoption curve. But I wonder if, you know, COVID will kind of necessitate more adoption or at least speed up the process. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, it just seems like COVID's accelerating different trends that have always been brewing under the surface. I think that's what uh, more general finance and economics people have been sort of positing. And I, I kind of agree with that. And I think it's definitely applicable to our space as well. I think, um, I mean, there's people that are now, you know, working more remotely. I know you mentioned the tie is kind of all remote for the time being and maybe going forward, potentially, I think we'll see that happen with more businesses. Uh, you're seeing Silicon Valley companies kind of lead the charge and setting aside, I mean, you know, some, some, most people are probably going to stay within the United States, but like maybe there are people that um, have decamped elsewhere globally. And uh, you know, they may not even be in the same country as you know, where the headquarters legally are on the SEC filings for the company they work for. And um, I think those kinds of movements, uh, a diaspora, if you will, I think also help with the idea of needing a more global kind of money, um, even underlying if it's not kind of the pipes themselves that you're using every day to day uh, for transactions. And so you you hit on, uh, you know, your experience as, uh, you know, a TMT analyst. Um, you know, what, what did your research process look like, um, you know, when you were an analyst, uh, you know, at the hedge funds that you worked at prior and, and what techniques and strategies were you able to bring over from your experience in traditional finance into crypto? Well, the thing crypto doesn't have is regulation F, uh, FD, uh, fair disclosure or anything that requires quarterly or annual reports. So that's, I think the biggest adjustment that I've had to make. Um, in terms of what was not portable, uh, learning how to source new data, how to curate the right contacts on Twitter to follow, and even build relationships more from the ground up. Like um, you mentioned, you and I have known each other for over a year now, just meeting people in the space, but then uh, finding the relationships that are, you know, kind of additive for both parties um, and just being, you know, a good friend and trying to be helpful to people has been uh, something that required more legwork than I think from the traditional seats that I was in. It was more transactional where, you know, your firm is, if you work at a large hedge fund, like the ones I've worked at, you know, you're paying um, the team or the firm overall a lot of money to the sell side brokers uh, like Goldman or Morgan Stanley. And so they'll have to pick up your call. But um, at the same time, you know, I guess there are certain elements of that that I miss the maybe accessibility of clean third party data. Um, You know, there are guys like you guys that are pioneering that uh, at the tie, but Overall, I think crypto is still suffering a lot from a data problem, but that's maybe stemming from the fact let's, that not let's everybody has a budget, that. right? So it, it's kind of a chicken and egg issue too. But I think that's um, what I do miss. And then the thing that I 
brought over is just the, the fundamental analysis and trying to form a variant view because ultimately you can only make money if you disagree, but if you're right about that disagreement. So, yeah. So what, what types of data are you looking at? Um, and, and what, you know, you mentioned things like, you know, filing requirements, right. And, and, you know, things like quarterly reports, et cetera, you know, earnings reports, you know, what, what data are you looking at? Where are you sourcing that information from? And, and what data are you missing? Like what, what, you know, obviously we're not going to have, you know, quote unquote quarterly reports in a decentralized ecosystem in the way that you would see them regulated, um, you know, by the SEC. Right. But, you know, what, what, what is missing in this space? You know, what would you like to see as, as a, you know, a hedge fund manager, what, what is your ideal workflow look like in terms of, you know, data and information identification? Sure. I think I'll start with a good first. I think what, our space does really well, actually, is on the market data side with like an asterisk. And what I mean is, um, since the days of Mt. Gox, where they did, you know, publish <laughs> their trading volumes, I mean, obviously, some of that turned out to be fabricated with um, Willybot, etc. But I mean, the open API access for a lot of the exchanges, um, especially the ones that see the most spot volume and have been kind of vetted by most people in the space, I, I think that's a positive, you certainly don't get that level of access um, without paying a lot for a Bloomberg terminal, for example, in the traditional world. So that's something that uh, we do well. I think what we don't do as well is um, really maybe digging deeper into auditing some of the, I mean, the most basic level, right? Uh, there were uh, the supply of different tokens, even Ethereum uh, had a lot of drama on Twitter over the last week or two, because, um, you know, some people were asking like, what is like how much ETH is outstanding, and the, you know, the answer to that is kind of complicated and a little subjective, depending on the software that you're running to verify that compared to to Bitcoin. And there was, um, you know, that that level of uncertainty for something that should ostensibly be a simple question is is something that I think will need to be cleaned up further or packaged or sold. Um, I don't know if it's a product or just some level of consensus that's agreed upon before I think institutional investors will be more comfortable because. Um, Speaking for myself as somebody that, uh, you know, looked at stocks a lot in the past, I mean, we took it for granted, like you kind of know what the fully diluted share was outstanding and how that was calculated. Maybe it didn't include underwater um, warrants or options, but that you could find that in the, you could find that in the 10K and you sort of knew where to go to get all the answers to the questions that you had about solving the numerator and the denominator for whatever valuation metric you were using. But in crypto, it feels like, like something's always missing from the top or the bottom to run the math and you have to like do a little bit of guesswork and that you know makes me a little more uncomfortable but I also understand that sort of why this space is still lucrative right now because there is more risk so um, the market generates more return to price in that risk right so maybe another thing I mean that uh, I feel like we could improve upon from a data perspective is the like the lockup schedules for different projects or how treasuries are managed. I think, I mean, some Preach. of that's proprietary, Preach. but it's also a little like, honestly, frankly, like bullshit, how some, some projects will sort of tell you, but then others, like you have to ask people that maybe ask other people and it's still like not, for sure. Well, right? it, it doesn't and, make any sense to me, right? You invest a hundred, you know, you know, in an ICO, two hundred million dollars gets raised raised by a protocol, right? Right. And then all of a sudden, you don't know when the founder is even selling tokens, right? Yep. Like, 
like you know, the, you know, you can track insider trading, right? We want to know when Jeff Bezos sells six billion dollars in right. Amazon. You have to report that, right? Because that's a, that's a signal, right? And 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 that doesn't exist within crypto. Um, you know, you know, for example, and and I've I've come up with some some theories on potentially how it could be done, like looking at if on a certain day we we actually have in our database recorded every single distribution schedule of a token that they had in their original white paper. I have look, we have the data, but I have no idea if anybody's following that. Um, you know, we haven't been able. We're not an on-chain data company, right? So that's not our. You know, that's not kind of our forte. Mm-hmm. But I wonder is can somebody track if anybody's actually following that? And if we know that on X or Y or Z date, a token's supposed to distribute, let's say, you know, ten thousand, you know, whatever ABC tokens to wallet, you know, X, Y, and Z. Can then we can we then track those wallets and see when they're liquidating out of those tokens or when they're moving those to an exchange? Um, I, I think that that could be, you know, a next evolution for this asset class, and it's certainly something that's needed. For sure. Although I would say there's another another complication in that because, um, you know, even if something was in the white paper, um, that may not have been updated. Like there may have been renegotiations with some of these larger holders, and you know, there's like this weird disincentive mechanism for, uh, you know, less clarity to make it to the people that aren't part of that, you know, the larger stakes on the cap table, and I think it's a little short-sighted and almost a tragedy of the commons because I think the less clarity and transparency there there is in some of um, the supply overhang uh, specifically, I think that actually limits the incremental um, demand, like from a buying perspective, from new prospective investors. I mean, speaking personally, there've been projects where I've like done some amount of work. Like I think the product is interesting. The product market fit is good and the team's good, but um, like I was just not able to get there in terms of comfort on, like who who is holding a lot of this and like when do they unlock and like do I believe what somebody told me about that versus you know if you know something is is going to be pretty liquid after you, you got in then that obviously that's not an ideal position to to establish a position ahead of so there have been times where I just wasn't ultimately able to to get there on a position on the long side because of just the lack of clarity or inability for a apples to apples comparison so and I think yeah I think similar to that you know, another thing that I struggle with is whether or not foundations actually have any money. Like a lot of these foundations, right? A lot in the way that it works with, with, you know, a, a lot of token raises in the past is basically you have this nonprofit entity called a foundation, which is created, which is the one that raises the capital to develop the protocol, right? To develop your Ethereum or whatever else it is. But one thing that I, I struggle with is whether or not these foundations actually have any capital. In many cases, a lot of them do. I mean, there are actually some foundations out there that I know of that have more money than the entire value of their network is worth, which is crazy, right? They can continue to develop. I personally think mm-hmm. if that, you know, you get to that point, potentially you should consider giving money back to your, you know, initial investors. But but my point being is there's no way to audit whether or not any of these projects have money to continue developing. Like, sure, maybe they have money for the next three years, but what happens after that? Yeah, that's a great point too, because that's another source of supply. Um, you know, depending on whether it's ether or their native token, but absolutely, I think that's again an issue of a tragedy of the commons in the sense that, like, it's there's always a disincentive for like one person to share more information if their peers and competitors are not. Um, but I think it would benefit the space as a whole. For I mean, I don't want to. I'm, I'm you know very sympathetic to the idea of small smaller government is better. Um, so I don't want to say that we should have like SEC style reg, reg FD disclosure being required or, you know, filings because 
um, that obviously imposes burdens, for, especially for some of these smaller projects that, like, you know, Wi-Fi probably not have been able to get done as quickly um, and build up the buzz if, if they had, you know, more overhead for some of these, like, compliance and back office functions just to uh, reach the market. But, I mean, I don't know if the answer is something like maybe the exchanges have leverage to enforce, like, some kind of ongoing disclosure requirement prior to listing. Maybe that's how it goes. I mean, I'm just sort of thinking out loud, but I, I think it's important. And I think there's a couple that people involved. If, if I think there are a couple know. that are doing a good job, and I'll give credit where credit's due. Zcash, um, yeah. very transparent. Um, you know, they talk about their burn and things like that, and I think that's that's incredibly, you know, incredibly important. But I'm with mm-hmm. you. I mean, I, I I'm with you that it shouldn't be mandated, but I wish that more token issuers took it upon themselves to be transparent in terms of how they actually we're doing financially because I would be less inclined to invest in a protocol that has, you know, a hundred thousand dollars left in their, in their treasury versus one that has $50 million. And, and in, in many cases, there's just no way of knowing nobody has any idea. Yeah. And I think maybe it's, I mean, op- my optimistic interpretation would be perhaps they don't, they just don't think that it's as important to, to disclose this, meaning they have other things to worry about, like shipping the next version of their mainnet or, um, you know, fixing bugs in the testnet or, or other kind of engineering requirements. But, um, you know, speaking as somebody that uh, had a lot of experience covering public companies, I mean, these companies, the reason that they were part of the S&P 500 and had been doing well um, and ultimately were, were able to kind of manage the, I don't want to say the word manage, like they know what, like the importance of like telling a story, but also sticking to promises made to the investment community that had been disclosed like fairly and publicly at the same time, you know, companies provide guidance for forward quarters uh, or even for for you know upcoming years um, and on an annual basis as well. And you know, the markets hold them to account and will penalize companies that have management teams that are unable to meet these targets. So I think um, you know there are companies. I mean, sorry, I guess organizations more like uh, that have started to hire. Um, people that, that are a little bit more focused on interfacing with invest, the investment community and digital assets. And, and a lot of them don't do that and yet have the, maybe the treasurer to do so. I think that's something that's like potentially interesting to think through. I, I think if we go through another and bull market, another... maybe some people will be forced to do that. But if people are, if there are organizations doing that now, they may even capture more of the capital inflows um, just uh, than they otherwise would have based on simply their engineering product alone. So that's something and interesting. Before you know, before you move on, just another thing to add. I mean, as well as is the fact that you know a lot of these ICOs raised capital in Ethereum, um, which fell from you know sixteen hundred dollars at one point to as low as what eighty ninety dollars, um, and and they didn't all liquidate it at the you know the you know maybe they raised thirty million dollars, but they raised it at fifteen hundred dollar ETH, right? And and then they sold at two hundred. Right, so you may think that one has more capital than they also have, but you also have, um, you know, some of these foundations that have their own trading desks now that are taking risk with the the capital that they have, and I just wonder how, you know, that's going to 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 play out. Like a lot of them just aren't sitting on U.S. dollars. A lot of them are considering getting into lending and OTC, and you know, just trying to um, make you know, out- outperform Bitcoin with the capital that they have in their treasury, which is just a risk, um, you know, I-, I think for lack of better words. Yeah, it's definitely a risk both for for them and their ability to continue 
you know, operating on the runway assumptions that they had, but then also for the token holders um, who have to worry about, I mean, like, how do you value a token where some of, I mean, the treasury could be potentially worth more than the network uh, that they, they've built, right? Is it a sum of the parts? Is it some other weird amalgamation? Like, you can't, like, should they spin out their treasury into, like, a different token? Like, you can start thinking through some of these. I mean, it's interesting and a little weird because there are, I guess, transactions that companies have done um, to try to unlock some of these value, uh, this value that may be unfairly discounted that, I mean, I don't know if, I mean, I don't think it'll happen anytime soon because there aren't investment bankers sort of pitching these necessarily, as far as I know. But maybe that'll start to happen in the future too. I think something that I've always like wondered about um, is whether we'll see like one protocol. Uh, I mean, I know Tron, you know Tron has made like acquisitions, but I think more. I'm thinking more like more organic type process where there is like a, a creative value unlock for two um, two projects, kind of actually deciding to like work together and tackle a problem better. But I don't I don't know how that would work necessarily. It's just I think we'll start to see some of that. Um, but it's interesting that we haven't really yet. And so, you know, we're talking, you know, in depth about a lot of, you know, things like, you know, supply issues and, and founder selling and things like that. So my question to you is, is how does your research process today compared to your research process when you first got into crypto? Were these the types of questions that you were asking um, or have they changed over time? Yeah, I think they, hopefully the questions I have today are better than the ones when I got started. I think that's definitely true. Um, I would say the sources that I use are a lot more curated. Um, you know, at the very beginning, even before I jumped in full-time when I was more of a hobbyist investor, uh, you know, I kind of didn't know the difference between like a coin desk and a coin telegraph or, um, the block or how maybe they tend to cover different topics differently. I certainly didn't spend as much time, um, following maybe the right people. I hate using the word thought leaders, but there are definitely people that like, freely share more information on Twitter than, than others. And I think there are definitely people that, um, you know, know more about what they're talking about just by way of where they work or what projects they're closer to. And I think curating that list is something that I've certainly improved as part of my process over time. Um, I would say also at the start, you know, my research process was more driven um, by a grassroots effort just to like meet as many people uh, in that, that are interested in crypto. But as you and I were sort of talking about a little before we started recording, I think over time, the incremental value of in-person kind of meetups has just gone down a lot versus um, just catching up with people that you have built relationships with over time. And on some level, I think that's a little sad for people that are just getting involved now. And I, I mean, I still, once you know we get past COVID, I do plan to still go to you know kind of the more like crypto 101 style events just to kind of be a handholder for... Um, you know, even more retail people that are curious and want to learn more. But um, I think it it is something that uh, over time, I think everyone sort of realizes who makes sense to continue to talk to or versus the people that are maybe more tourists and not as focused on like building value or relationships in the space, which is you know not a bad thing by itself. I think everyone's free to come and go as they please. So um, I think that's sort of how to answer that question. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I agree with you. I mean, I, I've got so much out of the people that I've met in this space. I mean, I think crypto does a really good job at embracing new people. 
Um, you know, I think obviously you have some of the quote unquote OGs that are excited to be OGs, but I think for the most part, crypto is a very open and warm and welcoming community. And the reason that we've got to where we are as a company is very much through networking and events. And I agree that it's, it's, it's quite sad that, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of no longer available, but I mean, that's given me so much, so much knowledge. And I mean, I'm, I'm ready to hop on, you know, hop on a plane. I saw Cointelegraph at a conference in, uh, in China. I'm ready to hop on a plane to whoever will let an American in, please call me and let me know so I can go, uh, I can go network a bit more because I'm going, getting a bit stir crazy here. For sure. Um, but, uh, so, so kind of following up on your research process earlier, you said that you go normally about 20, 30 deep, um, in terms of market cap. Uh, but sometimes stretched out to the top 100. Has that changed over time? Uh, and and do you is that is that a matter of just you know your is is it because of the the liquidity that these tokens have? Is it just because that's the total number of tokens that you can fully do due diligence on? What is the what is the reason for that restriction? Yeah, those are great kind of uh, answers to the question that you just asked. I think it's both um, liquidity and also the availability of quality information. Just by way of, I guess first, you know, a lot of the top 20 includes coins that have had more of a trading history. So if you want to have a sense of how they've reacted to prior events, either idiosyncratic to themselves or, uh, you know, the broader market within crypto or even macro, um, it's easier to test hypotheses uh, against the historical record for some of the more liquid coins that have a trading history. But I think also um, they tend to be the ones that there have been more discussion about within the past as well, or even just ongoing focus, right? I think um, there has been so much debate around Bitcoin and the block size and sort of the forks of Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV and, you know, potentially like another fork for Bitcoin Cash that there's just a lot of information that you could look up and try to understand and that's accessible versus um, for... There's you know other less liquid coins uh, within the top 100 that like you don't really see have much of a Twitter presence at all and they, they don't really publish information um, and I think that just makes it harder to to um, come to an understanding that's differentiated like you might sort of have the same view that a few others have that have read the white paper that hasn't been updated in a year and I think that's maybe there just may be less opportunity to find new information because it just simply doesn't exist or people don't care about it if it exists. Um, so and the re- it, yes, go ahead. No, no, just following up. I mean, in terms of information sources, obviously you're talking about publicly available ones, but you know, and definitely finish that thought. But are you also ever going directly to these token projects to validate or verify any information? Yeah, I think um, in the past, I mean, last summer, a lot of these DeFi protocols actually were very active with outreach. I'm based in New York, so they did a lot of. Uh, There's actually you know a DeFi meetup, and they would go to these events. And I would be, you know, among other people, asking them questions uh, to to better understand. I mean, Uma is an example of one that um, is, is, I guess, you know, getting some coverage now. And they uh, recently tested some new tokenomics. But, um, you know, even a year ago, they were out there trying to tell people what they were doing. And um, I think to what we said earlier, some of these in-person events that uh, took place in the past uh, hopefully and hopefully come back, I think were a great source of, of um, you know, opportunity to ask questions and have them answered. Because if you have done the homework and you come into them prepared, you're actually probably asking some of the more informed questions um, separate from the panelists and, and maybe the, the moderator. Uh, a, lot of the, a lot of times these events maybe just have 
um, people there for like free pizza. But uh, I think there's also people that are more serious and, and try to make it, make it there to, to, to understand and diligence these protocols. So that would be an example of interacting with um, teams. I guess nowadays it's more virtual, um, going to some of these virtual conferences and kind of getting in front of them and maybe following up uh, one-off to, to get some of the lingering questions answered. I think you definitely have to be proactive in, in crypto um, just because everything is so fragmented and everybody is just so physically distributed that um, you're not really going to, I think, be able to get to a level of research comfort just by reading what uh, is out there that has been shared publicly. I think you do have to do a little bit of legwork, but that's sort of what, what it takes to be a full-time investor in the space. So it shouldn't be a surprise. So we, we've talked a lot about, you know, due diligence and the different things that you can do and different data sources and information. So my question is, what actually gets you to pull the trigger on a buy or a sell? Um, what, what, what tells, you know, you know what, what, what informs Tapestry Capital that now is a good time to enter a token or now is a good time to exit? Sure. So we've talked about some of the things I take under consideration, which include if they have an addressable market for their products, um, maybe a top-down analysis of what that could look like if it replaces some of what is being um, offered in a more centralized way by existing competitors. So that's one thing I look at. But uh, in terms of like what gets me to pull the trigger, it really is a combination of everything. Um, sort of the the price targets, both for the upside and downside and sort of the risk reward that implies. Um, I also look at the catalyst paths. Um, we sort of talk about some of them, including mainnet launches and exchange listings um, that, you know, some of these projects will um, put so out is, there. So is, is a mainnet launch or an exchange listing for you a better entrance or exit point for some of these coins? You know, obviously there's a lot of, you know, sell the rumor, buy the news in this space. So I'm wondering kind of how you think about that. Yeah, you mean buy the rumor, sell the news. But yeah, I think um, it's... Sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. It's, it's. I think they're never uh, sufficient, but maybe necessary conditions to deciding position. And I think, unfortunately, like I wish I could give you a formula, like if it checks three of these five boxes, you know, I'm more likely to establish an exit position. Um, but some of it is is a little more based on feel in the sense that perhaps, you know, one token versus another, if they're pretty similar in the addressable market, um, you know, maybe there are differences in the uh, holder base, right? Like one may be more VC uh, driven, another maybe a lot more of the lockup is held by the devs and you kind of think that they are less likely to sell shorter term than the, uh, the, the VC back token, even if they're perhaps both trying to be Oracle platforms. Um, so there's a lot of nuance there, so I'm sorry that it's not it's not a better answer, but I think there's um, a lot of different considerations that ultimately go into pulling the trigger. And maybe to add a little bit of um, color there, I mean, I don't think I ever try to go in and out um, of a position like from zero to 100 or back uh, the other way, uh, especially if they are maybe larger percentages of the portfolio, maybe for some of the smaller side bets that are very uh, momentum driven, that might be the case. But generally, I think if I have, um, going back to what we talked about earlier, a medium to longer term view, then maybe it's a position where if I'm looking to reduce, I'll sell a third of it over a week um, and sort of reevaluate then uh, or kind of size up in a similar capacity before, versus getting you know in or, in or out in, in an hour or two. I think 
Um, it's not that I'm trading necessarily with larger size in the more liquid situations, but um, you just always want to, I think, minimize slippage and just the risk of, um, you know, kind of, I think nobody can ever time things fully. Um, so you, you want to be a little more responsible with how you you negotiate these sort of entry and exit um, price dynamics overall. And so just just quickly, how, how do you think about risk and how do you think about kind of, you know, events that can be, you know, I guess for lack of better terms, existential crises for tokens? Like, how do you think of the Ethereum classic 51% attacks in terms of, and, 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 you know, I'm not asking you, you can talk specifically about that token or just more broadly, but like, how do you think about that in terms of maintaining a position? Yeah, I think, so we can talk about ETH Classic. It's interesting because I think we've seen, obviously it's happened a few times for that particular chain uh, and I'm not involved with it. So this is just my opinion um, as opposed to like any, anything relating to my position. But I, I guess my view as a researcher in the space is it seems like the hack risk is no longer, it's, it's weird, right? It's not as, it's not viewed as that much of an incremental negative because these double spend attacks um, ultimately result in liability or, or loss for the exchanges to which it happens as opposed to, um, I guess, the, the network effect of people relying on it for their own transactions, which is kind of a weird, um, it's kind of this, I guess, a weird dynamic that's emerged. And I, I think- It kind of goes against the whole premise goes, of centralization, <laughs> doesn't it? It does, because it seems like the risk has been offloaded and as such people are less likely to be an incremental seller because they they know the exchange will eat that four hundred thousand dollar cost or whatever um i think it's important to not be too complacent about that because um compared to like bitcoin i think ethereum classics value proposition as a store of value is obviously not as strong just based on its market cap but um you know maybe an example that's related is i remember a year ago uh you know, when Binance got hacked, I think CZ had talked a little more offhandedly about the idea of reversing that with some, you know, some deals with the miners and everyone will be sort of net net better off except for the hacker, which morally seems right. But I think uh, a lot of Twitter uh, rightfully jumped uh, down his throat about how that really, I think, challenges the longer term value proposition of Bitcoin. So um, I guess that would be an example of a catastrophic risk just for Bitcoin, if the immutability of the code um, were challenged, or if there there was a bug that happened during some of these software upgrades that are being talked about, I think if you follow some of the core dev mailing lists, they really talk a lot about how there still aren't enough people doing code review for a lot of these pull requests just for um, Bitcoin, the Bitcoin core client. A lot of people, if they're trying to dabble, um, I mean, I'm not a programmer, so it's more just repeating what I've heard others talk about or focused on trying to like change something that doesn't matter versus review a lot of these um, potentially important upgrades. So I think that's one area that if a bug slips through, like some of the inflation bugs that almost made through in the past couple of years, like that would be potentially catastrophic. Um, I think on the ETH side, just managing the transition to 2.0 exposes some catastrophic risk as well. And, um, you know, keyman risk exists for a lot of projects. Like if Sergey God forbid, got hit by a car tomorrow. Like I, I don't think Link does very well, and I don't think Vitalik does. I mean, ETH does well if something happens to Vitalik. Yeah, what happens Even, to the Link Marines if Sergey gets hit by hit by a car? I don't know, but I remember uh, was it 2017? 
when there was fake news about Vitalik, I, I think there was the news fake news item was like he got in a car accident and died. And I think ETH was down what, like 20 or 30 percent and, and recovered once it become, became debunked. But I think that Keyman exists, uh, risk exists for a lot of projects. And it just we haven't seen that play out yet. And I actually expect that to be some uh, a kind of tail risk that, you know, unfortunately will, will happen. Um, mostly crypto guys are still fairly young, but like, uh, you know, there's always I mean, some, some things could happen. Right. So I, I don't think everything is sufficiently decentralized where um, chains will survive on the development side. They may survive on the price side. After right. Getting and cut even in half. not not the person being that, you know, uh, look, I think Ethereum could probably continue to develop without Vitalik, but he kind of leads the pack. Right. And I think that that's <laughs> a good point in that, you know, who becomes the face of these things and who kind of is is the person that these communities rally behind as well. Right. And it goes back to what I said earlier about companies that are publicly traded realize the importance of that investor relations function. And to date, I think even legitimate projects are a little hesitant to be overly promotional because they don't want to be, or maybe they don't want to be perceived as like pumping their own bags. Um, But I think to unlock some value for themselves, like they probably should, maybe it's at the foundation level, um, to the extent some of these places have set up foundations. Um, but there, I think there's a way to thread the needle in a way that's compliant and um, you know will be compliant in the future to the extent securities laws in the United States um, you know, govern some of these conversations. But if you want sort of the next wave of institutional capital to come in the space, I think you have to speak and talk the way that they're comfortable with. And some of that involves um, having people whose sole jobs uh, it, it is to, you know, tell the story in a way that uh, is yeah, I, I still like, understand distributed, why these, right? Like it, well, it's like you're, it's not, it's you not like you're selectively disclosing, but you're like, you're like putting out press releases, um, but you're also available to answer questions and you like build relationships with some of the research places and build research uh, relationships with some of the um, maybe larger uh, holders, but also prospective investors, even if they're not in your cap table. And I think um, I think like an IR portal literally ties together like ten of the different ideas that we've been talking about, right? You know, for sure, everything from yeah, maybe it's a gross- product and not people at these treasuries. Uh, who knows? Well, but 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 it could be you know it, it could be a combination, right? Like it could be an investor relations portal where you have you know information like you know concentration of ownership among developers and founders, and you know recent insider trading, and you have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, development updates and, and project updates and things like that, because I, I think that you need that level of transparency. I, I, you know, to me, I'm nervous about some of these things because I just don't have that. Like, you know, sure, I think from a short term trading point of view, it, it, you know, there's there's obviously tremendous amounts of room for alpha. But I think from a longer term point of view, especially as somebody who doesn't have the ability to do as much due diligence as you do, it's very difficult to establish trust in it, trust in any of these. Hundred percent agree. I think there's. I mean, even with as much time that I spend, I, I think there are just situations where you're never going to be able to get comfortable enough because the, the data is just you know missing. Um, and I, I fully think that's that's a problem that you know maybe it's solved as a suite of solutions or solved by groups of people. But um, yeah, I think it's definitely that would be something that I think is underestimated as, as what's keeping people on the sidelines or even maybe people that have invested in Bitcoin and are curious about alts that are, you know, maybe that that they could think would capture value and are investable, but are not going to 
um, get comfortable because they really just don't know when they'll get dumped on by uh, people that got in earlier than them, right? It's just, I think, something that uh, we should navigate because it's we're, we're a space where we blend the public and private markets, but it's not yet an analog blend. Like it's very digital and discreet. And um, I, I think we sort of need to see more of a, like more harmonizing in a way that gets people more comfortable. Um, but I don't know so, what that looks like. So something interesting I heard, I was speaking to one of probably the two biggest investors in all of crypto yesterday. And and what they, they shared with me is basically when nobody's talking about anything, I buy Bitcoin. But when your grandma starts talking about Bitcoin, I buy shit coins because people then look for more alpha and they rotate into shit coins, right? He's not buying or his, his firm is not buying shit coins, you know, as, as longer term bets or, or, you know, by shit coins, he was referring to basically non-BTC, non-ETH, non, you know, top five, top 10 tokens. Uh, but they're buying it because when, you know, all this new money flows into Bitcoin, it then kind of flows down into altcoins. And his thesis is basically because these things are so illiquid, there's opportunities for them to pump, but he doesn't have enough confidence to actually hold any of these things long term. Yeah. And I think that confidence is important to instill for uh, for us to move on from this kind of shell game of cap- capital recycling to capital growth for the space. Um, I don't think you or I or people listening to this podcast want a market structure where it's um, you know, less informed people getting taken advantage of by people with maybe bigger, bigger checkbooks or better relationships, but rather one where um, I wouldn't say there's like an equal footing by a decree, but more that uh, there's just enough positive fundamental reasons to like something. And there is enough uh, information available for people to make informed decisions instead of having to be comfortable with being partially in the dark. Um, I think obviously you can never be hundred percent certain about anything. Um, that's still even true for stocks, right? Like you can get auto data and like figure out the supply chain, but you still have to have an informed guess on, you know, how many Tesla model threes will ship in 2021 to, to determine how you value that stock. But compared to how comfortable you can get with the work that you do on a company like that, I think where some boundaries of whether it's like market data or um, just regular data or disclosures, where that line is for any given crypto project or a, you know non-Bitcoin project in general is like so much further from, from what I just mentioned for the Tesla side. So I think that is a gap that we should try to close. Um, and, and that's going to take like a group effort, right? It's going to take people that are investing just demanding more disclosure. And it's going to take companies being or projects being more willing to maybe be earlier to share more disclosure because they see that the long-term value is enhanced by them taking that first step. And it's going to also take, um, you know, entrepreneurs like, like you guys uh, at the tie who see an opportunity to maybe if there's enough demand to like offer a product to, to kind of help that along and bridge those two, two sides. So it, it takes, I guess, a village to um, make this space more palatable for and, and we're getting people closer. to come in. We are, we're- it really does. Like, um, I think I, like many other people, you know, there were times in March with everyone, everything selling off. We were like, wow, is, are we just like a decade too early? But, um, I think zooming out from that and seeing how things have, have stabilized, but people have continued to build even in the intervening five months. I think that's actually like really positive. Um, I certainly expected more people to, to ghost, but they haven't from people that I know, like we're all still in here, I think. So how how have you guys uh, performed? Uh, you know how has TapCap <laughs> performed during the bull market? 
Sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, without going too much into performance, I guess I can think about just, I try to bench my, benchmark myself, not against just the S&P or the, the hedge fund index, but also just Bitcoin. And I mean, year to date, that's been uh, a source of, I mean, the re- results been more outperformance uh, than underperformance, which is good, right? I think this is a year where if you have been able to have the stomach to, um, you know, maybe hedge a little bit with some some futures or, or options uh, to take advantage of the volatility and then um, get back in uh, selectively with the right alts, I think you have been able to, to outperform. Um, so that's something I guess I'm kind of happy about in terms of my investment process and potentially the results that that have come from that. So as much as much as I'd love to take up more and more and more of Evan's Evan's time, you know, I'm, I'm cognizant of it in, in all the listeners. So, uh, you know, want to want to do a quick kind of speed around of a few questions. Would love to get like one or two sentences on them, and then you know give give our listeners uh, information on where they can where they can follow you because they definitely should. Sure. Um, first question is. Um, how does how does macro impact how you're trading, or were you long Bitcoin to start with, so it doesn't have much of an impact? Yeah, um, I mean, I think macro is growing increasingly important. It was, certainly was really important during the large risk off um, move in March and the subsequent kind of slower but still fast risk on in April. I do think what has been interesting of late, especially over the last week or two, is um, the correlations between gold and Bitcoin, especially, um, you know, as we're talking about this in early August, that was when we saw metals give back a lot of gains and gold had the largest intraday drawdown in seven years, I think is what I saw. And then Bitcoin kind of traded off and recovered with that. I think that's like very long-term bullish for the store of value narrative that um, BDC bulls have always been pounding the table on. And I, I certainly don't think that move has been priced in similar to how you know, I, I think earlier in the year, at the very beginning of 2020, we saw Bitcoin trade up with um, gold, and that was in the context of co- sort of the, the military action the U.S. took um, in Iran. Um, this was like Jan 3, right? And that, I think, dictated some of the incremental buying that we saw into February that obviously got, you know, run off sides a little by just coronavirus. But I think these two data points are kind of Interesting, along with you know the other, I guess, dot in the line would be uh, Paul Tudor Jones, and then um, MicroStrategy, which I mentioned earlier. I think these are all part of the macro narrative, but macro for crypto really is just macro and Bitcoin. I think um, macro has less of an impact on some of these other projects that we talked about, which are a lot more idiosyncratic in what they're pursuing. And so, what uh, worries you most about crypto? Um, you know. You hold long-term positions, so maybe you're not as concerned with you know short-term risk. But but what keeps you up at night as a as a hedge fund manager? Um, you know, and, and what do you think are the biggest risks for the space? I know you mentioned that regulation was was not so much a risk as it was before. So if there are any others, I'd love to hear them. Yeah, this one is hard to define in a time frame, but I think my biggest risk from an, a thematic idea perspective is that we in the digital assets world, um, like the overall sum total of projects, including Bitcoin, do not reach what I'll call escape velocity fast enough. Um, I guess this is a concept you can analogize to like how much energy it takes for like a spaceship to leave earth, right? Like there's a lot of fuel that needs to be burned. Um, But if you don't get to that speed, um, you'll just get pulled down the gravity well again. And I think in the context of crypto, that would be like, if we are not able to find product market fit enough in aggregate, whether it's digital gold for Bitcoin or, you know, 
old computer for Ethereum, et cetera. But if the sum total of all of those shots on goal is not enough that new people are interested in using the networks or storing value in the tokens or investing, you know, a little bit of career risk in lending their brain power to developing some of these things that we've talked about in the space. And instead we see, you know, disorganization, um, entropy go up and just lethargy creep back in. Um, and, uh, I guess inaction and uh, ultimately apathy, I think would be like, those would be things that result in sort of this weird tragedy of us just kind of stalling out and then going backwards. And I think that is not what I'm seeing, but it's something that is really worrisome because, um, I, like, I, I don't, I think if like crypto doesn't take off in the broad way that we've defined it over the next, I would say five to 10 years, um, like then maybe it's not yet it's time and it'll take, you know, we'll revisit this in like 50 years when, when, you know, you and I have other things to worry about, like our joints and shit. So, um, that's sort of my, my fear, but I'm comforted both by the progress that I'm seeing on a grassroots perspective, but also the, um, the fact that there's just so many different experiments happening and some are, you know, riskier than others. And, you know, everyone should do their own research um, before committing capital, but even just keeping an eye on everything going on, I think it's hard not to be excited by like the innovation that's happening. Yeah. So what has you most excited? Is it, is it the experimentation? I think it, it's, I guess I have like a, it's like a barbell strategy in that I'm very excited by Bitcoin. And then I'm also very excited by like all the crazy stuff that's happening in DeFi, less from a, I can make money investing in it, but more like some of these like genius type savants are definitely going to figure out something that disintermediates like a quarter of the Visa or MasterCard business or something, right? Like as an example, like there are um, all these value chains that exist in fintech, in banks uh, that are very antiquated and some are trying to innovate and some are even trying to innovate using blockchain, but they're just not incented to do that fast enough. Whereas you have these, you know, like 20 year old uh, geniuses that like have never really failed in a way that like makes them hesitant to try and they're shooting for the stars and they're like shipping really cool things that may lose you all your money and are not audited, but um, like something's going to stick. Right. And you could argue some of what we've seen over the last month or two in DeFi shows shows that some of these things are sticking. So that's exciting. But then, you know, Bitcoin's boring, but also exciting for a different way to a different group of people call it. Like I think the 40 to 60 year olds that are now really starting to worry about inflation and like, their cousin bought a little, or sorry, their like nephew tried to sell them on Bitcoin, but they didn't like that they had to scan their driver's license to use this Coinbase thing. But now they're like, oh, I already own enough real estate, and like I need to think of other ways to hedge against inflation. Um, so maybe they'll take another look at Bitcoin, especially since you know they saw the news about Paul Tudor Jones. So I think I, I'm excited by like the the end of the spectrum, and I'm, I'm less excited about the stuff in the middle. That's like. You know, maybe Gen ones that didn't scale as well, like um, you know, Litecoin that is probably also obviated if if Libra really takes off. Like, what does Litecoin really do in that case? Um, or, or or Ripple in the sense that, um, you know, I I don't necessarily think the enterprise B two B model is going to be served by private permissioned uh, consortiums. I think um, with what Eny is doing with Nightfall and some of the partnerships with Microsoft, I think we're starting to see that migration to like a hybrid, but uh, using the public open blockchain settlement model, which is super exciting because um, I guess lastly, like I used to cover 
one of the subsectors was uh, data centers, which um, you know are huge businesses now, and they're they're really great from a multiples perspective. Like the market loves them because they're so predictable. But 20 years ago, people didn't think they were a legitimate business model because why would a company move from on-premises where they could control everything to a shared infrastructure model? And everyone thought that was like really stupid. And why would you invest in like the public cloud, right? And now we have days, I mean, obviously everyone knows about AWS and Microsoft Azure, um, but then there's also, you know, these more kind of colo center based businesses that uh, run the data centers, which are a little bit different than public cloud. But at the end of the day, I think shared infrastructure clearly has worked for telecoms and the internet infrastructure. So I don't see why it would be how we move forward for the internet of value transfer and storage. All right. So enough crypto, enough finance. Final question and, and you know, give you credit on this one because this, this one Evan came up with. But if you hadn't gotten into finance or into crypto, what would you be doing today? Uh, assuming that you, have, you, know, you never came across crypto. Yeah, I mean, if your audience hasn't figured it out by now, I guess I consider myself a pretty pretty big nerd. I'm not ashamed. So um, I think I've always been a big fan of space, like outer space. Um, I've always loved sci-fi and astronomy and reading things like that. So maybe being an astronaut or working at a company like SpaceX, um, trying to do my part to manifest our destiny to expand a little beyond Earth would be so. So really after cool. after all yeah. the listeners invest in TapCap and you give them a uh, you know a fifty x return, maybe I'll make your own Blue Origin <laughs> <laughs> or buy a ticket. I mean, being being next to Bezos on the, on the first rocket ship to Mars would be cool. But I mean, I I feel like I feel like um, Elon's going to get us there first, man. I don't I don't want to anger the Amazon fans out there, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's that's what I'd be interested in. Um, love to see a future where we we kind of have the ability to to live a little bit outside of the the biosphere. But who knows if we'll make it there? Yeah, and and I'm optimistic. That, that was no, that was awesome. I mean, this entire episode was awesome. I mean, you shared so many great insights, and I'm sure everybody's scratching to figure out where they can find out a little bit more about about yourself and about Tavistry Capital. Where can where can the listeners you know find you personally and find more about your company? Sure. Um, personally, you can reach out to me directly, Evan, E-V-A-N, at tapcap.fund. Um, you can also find our website at tapstreetcapital.fund. And I'm also on Twitter. Um, we'll try to tweet more. I'm still a little shy and trying to figure out the social media thing, but uh, Evan, at Evan the Fung is, is my handle on Twitter. So You also have a great to... medium. How do people find your Oh, blog? that's true. I'm also on Medium. Um, I think if you just search Evan Fung on Medium, that is my name there. So that is a place that I've published some thought pieces in the past. And um, yeah, it might be a good reference for people learning to uh, wanting to learn a little bit more about my thought process. All right. Well, thanks so much for uh, for joining us. This was a great discussion. And I mean, there are so many things we didn't even get into. You know, I would, would have loved to hear some more macro thoughts, some stable coins. So maybe we'll have to revisit this discussion at another point and, and, and see kind of how our, your theses have started to play out. Yeah, sounds great. Um, always happy to kind of pencil something in and get back on the show. Thanks again for having me, Josh.